We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today in Taipei by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And in Taichung by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight, we'll be discussing calls for the current weekly arrivals cap to be lifted. Qatar changing Taiwan's designation twice in less than a week for World Cup ticket applications. Power pricing and supply concerns being in focus this week ahead of a meeting of the Electricity Rate Review Committee. And food delivery company Food Panda facing questions over a service fee that's affecting some consumers in some areas, but not others. But we'll begin with the island's main political parties gradually finalising their candidate list for the top jobs, which are up for grabs in November's city and county elections. The DPP this week finalised, or made official rather, their nominations for the Jilong, Taoyuan and Shinzu city mayoral elections. Lawmaker Tsai Shi-ying will be running for Jilong's top job. Shinzu city mayor Lin Zhejian will be seeking the Taoyuan mayoral seat, while Lin's deputy Shen Huihong has been nominated by the DPP for the Shinzu city mayoral election. Those candidates got the official nod during a party central executive committee meeting on Wednesday. And speaking at that meeting, President Tsai Ing-wen, who of course doubles as the party's chairperson, described the trio as being the best the party had to offer. Meanwhile, the KMT this week officially nominated Shinzu City Councillor Lin Geng-ren as its candidate for the Shinzu mayoral race during its Central Standing Committee meeting. And speaking at that meeting, the KMT's chairman, Eric Ju, said the party believes the six-term city councillor is the strongest candidate based on the results of a recent internal popularity survey. The KMT, of course, has previously announced that former lawmaker Xie Guoliang will be its mayoral candidate for Jilong, while former Premier Simon Zheng is its candidate for the Taoyuan mayoral race. The KMT has also confirmed that incumbent KMT Shinzu County Magistrate Yang Wenke will be running for re-election, while the DPP has yet to announce its candidate for Shinzu County. So, Donovan, of course, the three cities there all currently run by the DPP and the KMT hoping to nudge one or two or even three of them out in November's election. Yeah, I think their their biggest hopes are probably in Taoyuan and Geelong. I mean, obviously in Elan, they they have the big corruption scandal there. I think that's not going to help them very much. Um, but what's really interesting is that you have in both uh, Geelong and in Shinju, you have the potential presence of, well, actually in Jilong, you already have an NPP candidate running. Uh, you have another independent former KMT running. And you have a someone from the TPP who's also interested in running but awaiting party approval. Meanwhile, in Taoyuan, you've already got a, uh, in uh, Lai Xiangling, you already have a candidate running for the TPP who's doing moderately well, not great, but moderately well in the opinion polling. And then in Shinju, you've also got, uh, you've got Chiu Shinju uh, from the NPP who's sniffing around running, and Ang Gao who's also sniffing around running uh, in Shinju. So you've got three or four or five-way races in each of these places. So I think that that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to, to, to watch play out. The NPP has been uh, a little bit more active than I expected to be in this uh, election, and uh, but but also the TPP 
uh, which I think it was a little bit more expected that they would be quite active. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see, particularly if Anne Gao runs in Shinju. I, I'm really looking to see how that plays out. Now, uh, what's also interesting is that in Shinju, uh, the DPP candidate uh, was previously an independent and joined the party uh, basically at the same time as being nominated. Uh, in Taoyuan, Zhang Shanzhang, Shan Zhang, the uh, Simon Zhang, uh, he was also an independent before uh, joining the KMT immediately before being uh, nominated as a candidate there, uh, which is a, a dynamic you're seeing actually play out in in several other races as well. So you've got uh, previously independents who are joining parties immediately before being nominated by those parties. Another interesting dynamic that seems to be playing out here is that in both the DPP and the KMT, both parties are are basically determining the candidates by executive fiat. And in Shinju, for example, um, the, the DPP's candidate there, uh, she didn't she wasn't actually the one leading in the polls, but she was the one preferred by Lin uh, Lin Jirjian, who uh, was that was his vice uh, vice mayor and she wasn't even a party member but yet they went ahead and, and picked her in Taoyuan of course they that was famously a mess for the uh, the uh, KMT and when the KMT came in by basically again by executive order came in and chose Zhang Shanzhang who may not be a bad candidate per se but the local candidates who had been lining up and fight, fight, trying to fight off uh, Luo Zhiqiang, who was a Taipei city councilor who had quit, come in, and been told by Eric Zhu that basically you, you won't be running in Taoyuan over my dead body. Um, they, and they were fighting against each other. They united in opposition uh, for a while there against uh, Simon Zhang being their candidate uh, because it was imposed from above. Most of that has been at least publicly smoothed over, but it's not 100%. Then, of course, you've got the um, the ongoing messes in Miaoli and uh, in Kaohsiung on the KMT side, and it looks like Zhang Hua is going to be a pretty big mess for the DPP as far as picking their candidates. So there's there's been a lot of internal infighting and jumping over the normal procedure of using either internal um, uh, negotiations between potential candidates or using opinion polling to determine the candidates. That's been skipped over quite a bit more in this election than is normal. So it, it's it, plus you've got the TPP and the NPP being very active here. And of course, in Taipei, you've got the People's First Party, Huang Shangshan, who is basically acting like she's part of the Taiwan People's Party. And but but refuses to leave the People's First Party and making that a very interesting three-way race as well. So there's there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in this race. So, Brian, Donovan summed it up pretty well there. I mean, what dynamics do you see coming um, up in the in the coming weeks? 
That's right. And so the DPP, at least, has managed to avoid the public spectacle that one saw in Taorin, in which you had different contending candidates for the KMT. There was even a brief period in which the former presidential candidate, Han was speculated that he might throw his hat into the ring before it was announced that Simon Chang would be running. And Simon Chang was his vice presidential candidate during his presidential run. Uh, and so at the very least, that has not been public for the DPP. But it does seem like there might be some internal contention there. Uh, DPP is somewhat slower to announce candidates, for example, regarding Taipei or Taorin, and speculation builds even as the KMT has announced candidates. Uh, I think the other dynamic to note is that the KMT is seeking to regain what it views as traditional ground that was taken from it in the last set of mayoral elections. And so a lot of times these uh, these race announcements are in traditionally pan-blue areas. And so the question then is, is whether the DPP can maintain its hold that it was able to gain during the last set of elections this time around, or whether the KMT is unable to do so and that it reflects or will be seen as reflecting weakness. Uh, the effect of the third party is also quite interesting there because then that results in a divided vote. Uh, polling shows the MPP doing worse than the TPP, which with, it, with the KMT in dire straits currently, the TPP is polling pretty well. Uh, the question is really then, does polling translate into real world political mobilization with the KMT having local networks that are stronger, have been around for a long time, and just more resources compared to the TPP? Uh, TPP is an interesting juncture because this is when Koenja, as the party chair and leader and the person that fronts the party, that's when his mayoral administration ends. And so the question is, can the party translate to one that has a broader base and is not built around Co? Uh, and it is running many of its legislatures right now for higher office. And so I think the attempt is to build a broader base there. And so there are interesting dynamics there. Uh, there's potential, I think, for internal splits, even with the TPP as a, a product of growth. Uh, one saw a similar phenomenon previously before the 2020 presidential election with the NPP splintering at a time in which it was growing uh, between party heavyweights. And I kind of even wonder if that's possible with the TPP now uh, regarding that there have been some disagreements that have emerged. Uh, but then TPP is now similarly opening offices all around the country. I believe they opened at least 30 uh, at this point, including in outlying islands such as Dingman. And so that's also a major expenditure of resources. So, and this is interesting too in looking at the TPP as a, a sign of whether it will make it or break it. And so I think this is another, another impact of this election that's worth keeping an eye on. Of course, Brian Donovan also touched on Kaohsiung. That's right. And so it's also interesting, too, because uh, particularly since 2018 elections, the Pan Blue Camp has had its eye on the South. And so Kaohsiung is an interesting race in which you do have uh, Pan Blue candidates then coming up against uh, Chen Ximai. But you even have, for example, Deep Blue, blue such as Zhang Yazhong, the uh, head of Sun Yat-sen school, who previously was up against Eric Chu and trying to contend for KMT chair and then became the favorite candidates of the Deep Blue, also throwing his hat to the race. And so that's a phenomenon that's also uh, kind of quite curious. I mean, you have these uh, deep blues running in the south. And so I think that's also curious to keep an eye on because that is again viewed as traditional pan-green territory. However, because the results of 2018 elections swung KMT, there's still a hope that perhaps Galshon could be turned for the pan-blue camp. And Donovan, what about the deep blues running in the south? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there have been so many names mooted and um, uh, like Lin Sichuan and the, these guys who all turned it down. So their initial problem was that all the people they wanted, including Luo Zhiqiang, who was uh, trying to, uh, who set his heart initially on Taipei and then was contesting in Taoyuan. Um, but now you've got everything from a Jinmen legislator to, um, uh, but right now it seems to be a lot of people are, are coalescing around uh, Ke, Ke Jiren, uh, but we still don't really know. 
Um, you have uh, uh, you know Zhang Yajong, who, as Brian mentioned, uh, challenged and led kind of an insurgent campaign against um, uh, against uh, Eric Jew for the party chair, uh, and he is deep, 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 deep blue. Um, now there was a, a leaked opinion poll which showed him actually fifth in the race down there and then he's been pounding away at these elections uh sorry these uh po the polling is fake and he wants to he wants to get the position uh as candidate for for the for the kmt down there and what's very interesting is uh of all the candidates in probably he has the na nationally he has the highest profile but uh, locals don't seem to be cottoning on to him and he seems to be joining sort of Lord Zhichang, who has been kind of leading the charge against Eric Zhu after after the top-down nomination in Taoyuan in essentially attacking Eric Zhu and the party brass for what he considers rigged polling and this sort of thing. So there's a lot of turmoil going on inside the KMT and to a lesser degree, but there is still definitely some going on. In the DPP and Jianghua and Ping Dong had a very brutal primary, and but yeah, I, I, if I had to bet right now, it looks like Kudrun is, is ahead in speculation on who will be chosen, but it looks like they'll be choosing next week in Kaohsiung, and that that'll be a very interesting call. Moving on now, there have been numerous calls this week for the government to raise the current weekly limit of 25,000 visitor arrivals. The government introduced that cap on June the 15th as part of a plan to gradually reopen Taiwan's borders. And the quota covers inbound Taiwanese arrivals, business people and migrant workers. Now, KMT Culture and Communications Committee Director General Esio Wong this week told reporters that the cap has resulted in many Taiwanese living overseas being unable to return to Taiwan. And she also said that Taiwan National should be excluded from the cap. And airlines and the travel agencies here have also been calling on the government to raise the cap, arguing that it's inadequate to meet growing international travel demand. Now, earlier this week, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai told reporters that the current weekly cap on visitor arrivals would likely remain in place until the end of this month. And on Thursday, the Central Epidemic Command Centre said it's currently reviewing the possibility of raising the cap on arrivals sometime in the coming couple of months. Now, that statement came after former Vice President Chen Jianren said many countries started opening their borders a month or so after local outbreaks peaked. So it's possible that Taiwan could do the same in the next two months as the number of local cases is declining. Meanwhile, the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan this week also touched on the issue of Taiwan's borders in its 2022 white paper. And it urged the government to speed up efforts to reopen the borders, arguing that 80 percent of the population have now been fully vaccinated with two two shots against the coronavirus, and also the fact that they're, well, the Chamber's members are worried that Taiwan's limits on arrivals are stymieing its business environment, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so it's not surprising to see these calls for further opening up, particularly because Taiwan has already transitioned away from COVID-0 and towards accommodating COVID-19 or managing COVID-19. And so the question then or the concern is that then Taiwan will be left behind by other countries in the world. Uh, the barriers for arrivals have remained in place because of concerns about new variants entering Taiwan, improving infectious or potentially counteracting vaccines. And so there's concerns regarding that now, particularly with new developments with the uh, BA uh, three and four and five variants of COVID-19. Uh, but then 
Taiwan is slower to reopen than other parts of the world, and so there is concern that this will affect Taiwan. And so Taiwan has actually benefited economically to date in terms of uh, the fact that Taiwan has managed to remain relatively COVID-free compared to other countries in the world, and even the outbreaks as Taiwan attempted to accommodate to COVID-19 were still smaller in scale and were managed. Uh, but then the question now is how to uh, change this. And I think that there will be criticism if the uh, public, if the government does open up too quickly and let's say there are variants that spread and, and that sort of thing. So I think the government is cautious of that. I mean, the KMT has leverage on this at points uh, to criticize the government as being too quick to relax measures or too quick to uh, try to reconnect Taiwan in the national world when this is in fact dangerous. At the same time, uh, it's already that there are tens of thousands of cases daily. And so it does seem like perhaps now is the time for uh, thinking about re relaxing these measures. The question is just the uh, really timeline. Uh, there are still many members of the public Though, that who still look at the current outbreak or even just the overall strategy of switching away from COVID-0 to managing COVID-19. Um, though there is no way to maintain these strategies forever because there are ways that variants would eventually find their way into Taiwan and Taiwan cannot stay isolated from the world forever, uh, there are still people that actually do view this as a mistake and would have rather maintained the previous uh, circumstances in which Taiwan actually was isolated from the world, but there were not COVID cases. And so I think the government also does want to tread PR strategy carefully here in order to avoid seeing reckless with COVID strategy. And of course, Donovan, there was some controversy about the government adding Taiwanese nationals wishing to return home to the weekly limit of arrivals. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit disturbing when countries do this. I mean, Australia did this with their citizens for years uh, during COVID. And uh, a lot of people got stranded overseas without financial resources to support themselves. And never mind, of course, also the, you know, the human tragedies, of course, you know, in cases where people coming back for funerals or weddings or uh, these sorts of things. And at this point, it looks like for now, at least it does really look like the uh, caseloads in Taiwan are coming down uh, and will soon be stabilizing under 50,000 a week. Uh, down from nearly 100,000 a couple of weeks ago. So it looks like hospitals have the capacity to take in, you know, because at most you're going to get something along the lines of 10 to 12 percent of incoming passengers may have COVID. So if they were to lift the cap to say 50,000, that would mean you might get another 5,000 cases, 5,500, something like that um, at the maximum. So and the, so the hospitals don't seem to have a major problem with capacity at this point. Uh, it would increase those numbers of uh, infectious cases, but that's really more of a PR issue, particularly if you're dealing with your own citizens. Um, so, you know, and of course, Chen Jinren, which you mentioned, uh, the, the former VP, who's also a John, Johns Hopkins uh, epidemiologist, he's suggesting starting from next month, and, of course, the country is at about 75% uh, booster, uh, have taken their booster shot. Over 80% have had uh, two shots um, and are fully vaccinated. So I, I, I'm a, you know, it does look to me like the delays are political, uh, political cautiousness, which uh, Brian noted. I, I, you know, and, of course, then there's also the... Uh, all, all the speculation around uh, Chen Shih-chung, the health minister, potentially running for Taipei mayor. And we have no idea whether or not any of those considerations are playing into their decision making. But in general, I'd say probably not too much because they've been cautious right from the get go. 
But there is, I think, a good case to be made that this cautiousness is maybe overdoing it at this point. And Brian, you think, how much do you think it's hurting the economy, this overcautiousness, as Donovan put it? It's hard to say. I think it's a, a trade-off because uh, the cautiousness in terms of COVID-19, or at least just maintaining strict measures against COVID-19, did benefit the economy at a point in time in the pandemic, but now may not be the time to maintain that indefinitely. Uh, but at the same time, there's a political demand, I mean, from some sector of the population who just believe that, well, you can maintain or you should maintain these measures indefinitely until the end of time. Uh, just the fear that COVID-19 as always has to be kept outside of the borders. And so there is that segment of the population that believes that. And so I think particularly the time administration also needs to sell the uh, notion of relaxing measures rather than coming off as too hasty. And so packaging that as necessary for the economy or even just necessary to prevent a uh, sudden outbreak of COVID-19 in a way that overwhelms Taiwan's medical capacity, the way that Hong Kong, for example, experienced a, a shift away from COVID-0 in a rather uncontrolled manner when COVID did enter Taiwan's borders. And so I think that's the challenge. I think particularly when it comes from Chen Jieren because of his uh, public esteem as an epidemiologist and as a former vice president, it could be even that he could release, he made these statements in as a kind of floating the idea publicly for the sake of this time administration. And so I think that's something to be noted. I mean, notably, he joined the DPV despite not having previously been a member in a series of moves that that led to speculation whether this was to prepare to, uh, for Chen Shijong, the Minister of Health, to run for Taipei mayor, and then perhaps Chen could take over his position. Uh, Chen, Chen, Chen Jian, I mean, to uh, not Chen Shijong, take over his position. Uh, so I think that it's unlikely that he would make such statements as a prominent public figure without some coordination with the DPP in that respect. So I think that's also worth keeping an eye on. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week for the second half of the show. And in some sports-related news this week, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs thought it was all over, but it wasn't, as Qatar chose to change the island's designation for a second time on online fan application form for the FIFA World Cup. That resulted in the ministry expressing its deep disappointment on Monday that the soccer tournament host nation had been forced by China to belittle Taiwan's sovereignty status. The designation dispute began last week after it was reported that the drop-down menu on the application website for the Haiya card listed Taiwan as Taiwan province of China. Needless to say, the foreign ministry cried foul and protested the title to Qatar, and it was replaced by Taiwan a day later, with the government here expressing its gratitude towards the Gulf state for safeguarding the rights of Taiwanese fans. But the referee hadn't blown the final whistle on the matter yet, because, as we know, soccer is a game of two halves, and Qatar changed Taiwan's name on a drop-down menu again at the weekend to read Chinese Taipei. Now, Chinese Taipei is, of course, the name used by Taiwan in major international sporting events, including those sanctioned by soccer's global governing body, FIFA. Now, China's foreign ministry expressed its appreciation for the second change of designation, saying the Qatari government's commitment to the One China principle and its handling of the issue is in line with the established practice of international sports events. Here in Taiwan, meanwhile, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was quick to send the ball back to China's end, albeit on a screen version, by issuing a statement saying that it was regrettable that due to Chinese bullying, Qatar decided to make the latest change to Taiwan's name. That statement also slammed Beijing for belittling Taiwan's sovereignty based on the fictional One China principle to create the illusion that Taiwan is part of the PRC in the international arena. So, Brian, yet another flurry about name changes and names. I mean, is this a surprise? And do you think the Qatari people that changed the website had a whoops moment? 
Yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, while there are many such stories regarding Taiwan being listed as Chinese Taipei or some variant thereof in sporting tournaments, uh, international events, also on the drop-down menus for shopping websites and also airlines and, and that sort of thing, uh, this time there were flip-flops. And so I'm actually kind of a little surprised there in the sense that uh, although Chinese authorities may publicly praise Qatar for listing Taiwan as Chinese Taipei, they did flip-flop, and I'm sure that doesn't make China happy to that extent. And so I'm a little surprised they didn't just pick one viewpoint and stick with it. Uh, they did flip-flop once, perhaps not knowing the controversy regarding this, just but though I think that as someone that organizes international sporting events in that capacity, it's such a recurring story in the international news that they should have perhaps been aware of that. Uh, but then they don't please both sides, and now so there's further backlash from Taiwan and international sporting fans. Um, but this particularly, I think, charged in the wake of the Olympics uh, because of the fact that that's a major event that internationally spotlights how Taiwan is forced to participate as Chinese Taipei. And so then in terms of this, at a time in which the U.S., for example, has spoken up for Taiwan's participation in international organizations or Chinese building on the international stage, it means that any organizer has to risk upsetting one side, but then flip-flopping perhaps upsets both. And so that's, I think that's the kind of surprising part of this story. Yeah, I, I think Brian's absolutely right. Is basically it's incompetence on the Qataris' part. I mean, if you're going to hold an international event, you kind of need to know these things. I mean, for a while there, Qatar didn't even have an entry at all on the pull-down uh, menu there for Taiwan, and Taiwanese had to choose China with no, not even a province of China option. Um, that was that was uh, the earliest problem is that there was nothing at all for Taiwan. But then you had the province of China, then you had Taiwan by itself, and then you had Chinese Taipei. And it really looks like the Qataris really just didn't know what they were doing. Now, if you're going to hold the World Cup, which, you know, I, being North American, uh, you know, it's easy to, to forget that uh, – it's a sport that other people in the world actually are interested in. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is something that is international. It is something that brings massive amounts of uh, world attention. And something as logistically basic as your drop-down menu I, really is not a good look for, for Qatar. And, of course, having these weird... Uh, documents that Qatar is requiring people to get for the event is also a little bit odd in and of itself as well. Um, and then, of course, there have been all the all, all the problems with uh, abused labor and all of that that Qatar has been accused of uh, uh, of uh, engaging in in building the venues uh, with uh, imported labor that is also not a very good look. Uh, so Qatar should have been really on the concentrated very, very heavily on keeping keeping its public image a clean, squeaky, considering all the problems that had already happened up to this point. So this was just, a, as, as Brian noted, this was just a giant screw-up on their part. And Brian, I mean, do you think the Ministry of Foreign Affairs should have kept maybe stum when it got changed to Taiwan and waited to see what would happen? Yeah, I think it's one of those things because then the uh, MOFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, would like to tout this as a accomplishment that due to Taiwanese pressure, then there's change back to Taiwan and saying that, well, we thank you and, and trying to use this um, actually even to outreach, saying that, well, we thank you, Qatar, for standing on, on behalf of Taiwan in this case. Of course, then it quickly changes back. Uh, but yeah, it kind of does surprise me then that for sporting events on the international stage, there's not some kind of SOP for handling these issues or just in terms of the world, there's so many issues of it, political sensitivity regarding nations and what they're referred to. And there are only so many, actually, because it's 
there's just this many nations or, or territories or whatever out there in the world. And so I'm kind of surprised that they didn't figure this out earlier. Um, but I think Moffa in this case, uh, either way, regarding which way Qatar swung, they would either, either tout this as accomplishment or try to use this as a, a chance to criticize China. So I think that was to be expected. And I think, our, oh, sorry, Donovan, carry on, Donovan. Yeah, no, I, I think MOFA actually definitely did the right thing in thanking Qatar for uh, using Taiwan when when they changed it to that uh, and calling attention to it. Because essentially that set up a situation where if Qatar actually decided to make a change to that, that would embarrass Qatar because it would show them caving to the Chinese. So MOFA basically, uh, basically set up a situation where Qatar had to, if they made a decision against Taiwan, this would call attention to the issue of Taiwan's naming, which is exactly what MOFA should be doing, because Taiwan is obviously a sovereign, independent country, and China will, as MOFA put it, bully uh, companies and countries into changing their designation. Uh, and Taiwan is right to really make sure that this issue is continually highlighted and that that China is clearly seen to be the bully in this in those situations. And moving on now back to news about Taiwan in Taiwan, power pricing and supply concerns were in the news this week. As on Thursday, Thai Power said that electricity consumption reached 39.782 million kilowatts at 1.40 p.m. that day, setting a new record for the fourth consecutive day. Now, the usage rate exceeded the state generator's estimated maximum daily consumption of 39.3 million kilowatts. Now, that saw Thai Power's operating reserve margin fall to 6.87% Thursday, lower than the 8% reserve that indicates an adequate supply of electricity. And all that comes as the Ministry of Economic Affairs next Monday will begin reviewing electricity rates. Now, the move by the Ministry of Economic Affairs to review those rates comes amid speculation that the committee that reviews the rates could hike prices by some 8% for heavy users. Now, the semi-annual review of electricity rates was postponed from March the 29th, and reports say the ministry opted to delay that meeting on the back of volatile global fuel prices due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and increasing concerns over inflation. Now, according to the Inner Economics Ministry, the review committee will be taking into consideration the advice of experts and people's livelihoods before making any final decision on possible electricity rate hikes. Now, the committee has, in fact, kept the current rates unchanged since April of 2018. So, Brian, we've got concerns about power supplies on one hand, and then the government saying, well, we're going to hike electricity rates on the other hand, which is obviously they hike rates and you lose your power. It's not going to make consumers very happy. Yeah, that's right, though. I think the uh, rates are targeting heavy users, particularly industry and so forth. And so this is another uh, consideration there. Uh, so I think, as usual with Taiwan, there are concerns about Taiwan's power supply, uh, particularly in the summer, in which there's a heavy usage of electricity for air conditioning and other usages. Uh, and particularly, I think then the government is worried, as also usual, of blackouts uh, because this affects consumers. Uh, there was a blackout yesterday in Singi that affected, in Taipei, that affected a thousand or so households. Uh, but then also, blackouts affect industry, and industry is afraid of losing productivity and time. Uh, if there are two blackouts, that affect its uh, production lines and assembly lines and that sort of thing. And so then consideration is 
is that perhaps industry may move elsewhere. Uh, but the balance then, I think, particularly regarding raising the prices for heavy use of electricity, is that will that spook industry? Will they remain? Uh, but in that respect, I think there's also not, uh, not, not new in terms of the summer and that the story comes around uh, basically every summer. And so I think the question then is stable energy supply in Taiwan and the, uh, particularly the energy transition in Taiwan and, and how to meet the needs of the population for energy uh, in during these periods of heavy consumption. It was Donovan, the pricing, our, our, our electricity bills, they go up and we lose our power because of power cuts. Well, the, the nightmare scenario for the government is that both happens. But the fact of the matter is that Taiwan has some of the lowest energy rates in the world. Um, and the Thai power, which is not not known to be uh, particularly competent in the first place, is also underfunded. And so you get these blackouts, like there was a blackout in Taipei the other day. Uh, you know, it was only a thousand households or so. But, uh, you know... You see these regularly happening where people, their chair bumps a button and, uh, you know, these these things keep happening. And the so you, you've got a situation where you've got a very poorly set up grid. You've got a government which is pushing to to phase out nuclear and bring in renewables Although they're, they've already announced they're not going to make their 20% renewables by 2025 target, uh, they've already had to abandon that, saying it'll be 2026 or 2027. Um, meanwhile, you've got a, 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 a actually very – well, the government policy here on energy and Thai power has really not exactly been spectacular. On the other hand, you've got a very successful Thai administration – uh, 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 efforts to bring back Taiwanese companies to reinvest back into Taiwan, which has been far more successful uh, and has led to a very sharp increases in industrial demand for electricity, all the while while not raising rates. Now, apparently, uh, the electronics industry, chip building, and, uh, sorry, chip making and uh, basic metals had a 10 percent increase in power demands over last year, which is pretty significant considering those are the major users. And you've got a, a, a string of new uh, chip fabs uh, and other companies returning from China uh, is set to be uh, is set up in Taiwan, which means that the, these, the demand growth is going to far exceed what they had originally planned for. Then you've got, of course, they planning to phase out nuclear, which is going to be tough. They're planning to phase out the coal-fired units of the Taichung power plant, which is going to be tough uh, with the increased demand. So you've got, and then of course they wanted to, uh, you know, with the liquid nat natural gas up in Taoyuan, you have the terminal there has been delayed, and the pandemic has delayed, among other planning errors, has delayed offshore wind off of Zhanghua. So you've got a lot of delays. You've got a massive amount of increased demand. And you've got a underfunded system that is not set up to encourage people to be efficient or use, you know, use efficient uh, or cut their the cut on the demand to make cuts on the demand side. So at some point, they're going to have to raise the rates, which will in the shorter term, because major infrastructure can't be built overnight. And they're going to try to keep with their nuclear phase out and the 
coal-fired unit phase-outs. So the only alternative, if they want to keep with those plans, is to try and reduce the, uh, on, r- reduce, uh, reduce uh, power usage on the demand side. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is raise prices. And so there really aren't any super palatable options, and the Thai administration generally likes to take the least controversial uh, way out of any any situation that it finds itself in. But at, at some point or another, it's going to have to make some decisions that are not going to be popular. There's just no way around it. And before we go this week, food delivery firm Food Panda is facing questions over a platform service fee that's affecting consumers in some areas, but not others. Now, the Taipei city government on Tuesday of this week announced that it will hold Food Panda to account over the service fee and says it's given the company one week to come up with a detailed and appropriate response to customer complaints. Now, the food delivery company introduced the fee on June the 7th. The surcharge has been set at 5 NT per order in Taipei, New Taipei and Geelong, and 3 NT per order in Taoyuan and Shenzhou. And the Cabinet's Department of Consumer Protection says 831 complaints have been lodged against the surcharge since it was introduced. So, Brian, you're a man that orders lots of food from to his house. What do you think about this surcharge? And should they scrap it? And why isn't it in Kaohsiung and everywhere else? Yeah, so it's interesting because it does target specific cities. And I think it's part of why the Taipei city government is weighing in on the issue in that it is higher for Taipei than other parts of the country. And so that it does reflect maybe differences in cost of living or just the fees and so forth. But I think particularly given how closely integrated Taiwan is across different geographic parts of the country, uh, it does seem like favoritism to some people and hence the criticisms. I think particularly the Taipei city government is also leaning in without criticizing Uber, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Food Panda for this uh, can be seen as popular in a time in which I think Think there are quite a lot of people ordering online from Uber Eats or Food Panda because of COVID-19. And so I think then people will be uh, angered, for example, just by even a few NT with, without regards to saving money and uh, just the higher expenses of ordering food compared to buying out and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this also takes place at a time in which there are concerns regarding, let's say, protections for the couriers that work for Uber Eats or Food Panda. Uh, but sometimes then in spite of their lack of protections, then raising uh, funds for for raising the prices, there's not a lot of consideration where this money is going, I think, in terms of that. Perhaps if it is to help uh, protections for workers, that might be more palatable to the public, uh, because this is a time in which there are a lot of uh, couriers going around and making a lot of deliveries and there are accidents and that sort of thing, uh, and their attempts to organize labor as well regarding uh, food delivery uh, services. But I guess that doesn't really come up in discourse. And so, Donovan, do you think Food Panda is cashing in on its popularity at the moment in time? Well, I mean, obviously, there's inflation. Um, you know, it, it, food inflation in Taiwan has spiked uh, quite dramatically recently. Um, and it could be they're also trying to insulate themselves because they know that uh, it, there's definitely at some point or another, uh, which actually we didn't touch on on the electricity one, but is that the cost of inputs for fuel uh, of all types have been uh, spiking dramatically, and that's why they the Thai power wants to raise the rates for uh, industrial users is because uh, CPC uh, is losing money hand over fist. Um, that's the China Petroleum Corporation uh, because of these spikes in international prices. So there, there's a lot of when you're in the food delivery business, you've got the food inflation. You're going to have to at some point face uh, energy input uh, raises. 
But the question is, why are they imposing this? And that, as far as I can tell, isn't absolutely clear. They're not exactly explaining to people why. And they're not explaining why the geographic regions. Uh, and I think it's their lack of transparency on this uh, that's a bit of a problem. But being from Taichung, uh, it's really hard for me to get too worried about it. That basically, if you can afford to live in Taipei, you can probably afford the 5NT. But I mean, when you ring up Food Panda Donovan and they chuck a 5NT surcharge on it, would it irk you? Once or twice, maybe not. But if you've got regular deliveries, would it sort of annoy you a bit when you added up all those 5NTs? Well, that's when the pitchforks come out. But happily, it hasn't <laughs> affected us here in Taichung. So at this point, you know, the pitchfork stays in the closet. And Brian, of course, you live in Taipei and you do order lots of food to home. I mean, do you mind paying the 5NT surcharge? Well, it's not a major thing for me personally, but I guess I, what I point out is that this is a country that stampedes for uh, raises in toilet paper prices. So I'm not surprised there's backlash regarding uh, Food Panda here. Anyway, that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Yu in Taipei. Good night. And Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can get access to one of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.